forgive us our debts as we also forgive as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for if you forgive people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you men brought to lying on a mat when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic take heart son to say, get up and walk. But so you, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he has been forgiven with all love. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So, watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. Life is full of unexpected consequences, isn't it? Sometimes we do what we think is the right thing, only to find it has tragic consequences. In the late 1950s, when doctors discovered that thalidomide would help pregnant mothers with morning sickness, they had no idea that it would also produce birth defects. Over 10,000 children were born without arms or legs or ears or with faulty internal organs. The drug was withdrawn in 1962, and that's to a great extent the reason why we have such strict policies now for introducing new drugs. 
when we were in Canada, um, the church that we were part of had a flood. And the first thing, that after the flood, the, when the restoration company came in, the first thing that they did was check for asbestos. Because around the time that that part of the church was built, um, people, some, of the, some of the kinds of plaster that people were using had asbestos in it. And why not? It's a fire retardant, and it would make the building safer, right? But people didn't know that if you put asbestos in building materials, and then you disturbed it later, that could give people cancer. Other times, we do things that we know are wrong, but we don't see the full consequences of what we've done. Cigarette packages clearly spell out the link between smoking and lung cancer, but people continue to smoke. A man's driving his car home, and his cell phone falls on the floor of the car, and he reaches down to get it and takes his eyes off the road, goes across and swipes a car and kills people in a car in the other lane. He knew he shouldn't reach down and get the... We all know that, right? But the consequences of our actions, we are ne we, we're never fully aware of the consequences of our actions. It happens to us all the time. We do things that we think might be foolish or harmful, but we don't really understand how foolish and harmful our actions might actually be. I wonder what the soldiers thought the first Good Friday when Jesus was being crucified. Did they think they were doing something good, something for the good of the empire that would keep the empire peaceful? <coughs> Excuse me. Did they think that maybe it wasn't such a smart idea to uh, execute such a popular teacher? Did he think at all about what they were doing? Or was it just a job, just one more crucifixion, part of the job of being a, a Roman soldier? They didn't really comprehend that they were killing the Son of God. The religious leaders, well, they just thought that they were framing another uh, religious fanatic, some, you know, someone who was a threat to their power. They didn't realize they were plotting against God in the flesh. Mark mentioned last week that um, I appear to be obsessed with sevens at the moment. Um, so we just finished the seven I am, I am sayings of Jesus in, in John's gospel. And this is the first in a series of messages leading up to Easter that are based on the last seven things that Jesus said on the cross. Called Jesus' seven last words is what they're usually called. And the person's last words are important. You know, it's often when um, someone in the family is close, close to death, it's quite common for the family to gather around. And it's one of those important times. And part of, what, part of that is listening to hear what the person's last words are. You see that in the Old Testament often that as, a, as a, one of the patriarchs is about to, to pass away, he gathers his family together and gives them all a blessing. So over the next seven weeks, as we approach Easter and the season of Lent, we're going to listen to Jesus' last words. 
and we're going to help use them to help us reflect on our need for a Savior. And today, we're going to look at the first of those in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. <clears throat> now, Jesus has been hauled up before the Roman governor on charges of insurrection and blasphemy. And the governor has tried to avoid um, making a decision. First of all, he sent Jesus off to Herod. Then he tried to convince the crowd that Jesus was innocent. But in the end, he gives in to the mob and he sends Jesus off to be crucified. Now, the crosses that were used in the first century were much more like a capital T like this rather than the traditional crosses that we think of now, which are more like that. Okay, And we're told that Jesus at first carried the crossbar um, of his own cross, but then that the soldiers grabbed someone from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and got him to carry it, probably because Jesus was already so exhausted from the torture he'd already experienced. And then once they got to Golgotha, he was nailed to the crossbar. Then it was lifted up, and dropped onto the top of the, the, the socket, the top of the, um, the upright was already there. And then his feet were nailed to the upright. And after all that, after all the beatings and the torture and the interrogations, and then the bone-jarring shock of being dropped onto the top of the up, upright, <clears throat> after all that, Jesus tell, sorry, Luke tells us that the first thing that Jesus said on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus' first words on the cross are a prayer. He doesn't speak to the soldiers. He doesn't speak to the woman at the foot of the cross. He doesn't speak to the religious leaders or the crowds. He looks up to God and he prays, Father. It's how Jesus always prayed. It's how he always prayed. In all of Jesus' prayers, he never addresses God as Lord or King of the universe or any of that kind of stuff. He always called God Father. And he taught his disciples to do the same thing. One biblical scholar says that Jesus' whole life can be summarized by that one word, Father. Jesus came from the Father, he walked with the Father, and he returned to the Father. He was in constant communion with his Father. And he taught us to pray, this, pray the same way to call God Father. And Jesus prayed in all kinds of circumstances. <clears throat> he prayed when he was full of joy. Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. He prayed when he was sad and afraid. Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, <clears throat> My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And here on the cross, when he's in great pain, his response is to pray. I have to confess, my first response in every circumstance isn't always to pray. Sometimes it is. Sometimes I spend far too much energy trying to fix whatever I'm facing in my own strength before I turn to the Lord in prayer. But Jesus' habit of a lifetime comes out as he faces his greatest challenge. He prays. And like Jesus, we too can pray to our Father in all our circumstances, and especially when we're in pain. When the pain is the worst, that's often when we pray the most. And Jesus did the same. When we're in our worst pain, whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, pain comes in many, many shapes and sizes. When we're in our worst pain, we can call out to God our Father, asking him to handle the situation that we find ourselves in. Father, forgive. <clears throat> Second word from the cross is forgive. Now that would have been a surprise. People standing around would have expected Jesus to call on God to damn and punish those people at the foot of the cross who were crucifying him, killing him. That's what the Jewish masters had done in an earlier generation. Second Maccabees. No, it's not in your Bible, unless you have the one with the, um, <clears throat> the apocrypha in the middle. Second Maccabees is one of the intertestamental books, written about 100 BC. So at that time, there was a program of what they forced Hellenization. Palestine was under the control of, it was under Greek control, and the emperor was forcing people to adopt Greek culture. And <clears throat> Second Maccabees has some pretty gruesome descriptions of the tortures that were inflicted upon observant Jews who re refused to comply with that. Things like tearing hair out, cutting off hands and feet, frying people alive on a red-hot platter, that sort of thing. And it also has some pretty strong words from the victims. Chapter 7 of 2 Maccabees tells of the torture and death of seven brothers. Here's the last words of one of them. And when he was at his last breath, he said, You cursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. Another, another of the brothers says this, I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews will certainly not escape the hands of God. You unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the almighty all-seeing God. You, by the judgment of God, will receive just punishment for your arrogance. That's the kind of thing 
that the crowd would have been expecting to hear from Jesus. That was the effect of crucifixion. People crying out to die and cursing those who crucified him. So you can understand the surprise, shock even, when what he actually says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Reading the Bible a lot is a good thing, and I recommend it. <clears throat> but there's a problem there. And the problem is that we become so accustomed to what we read that we become blasé about it. Because before we get to Luke 23, 34, we already know what Jesus is going to say, right? We've read it so many times. We already know what he's going to say. So it's no surprise to us. But it would have been a huge surprise to the crowd. And if you ever read the Bible with someone who's never read it before, it's a real surprise to them too. It's always a good, it's a good thing to read the Bible with somebody who's never read it before because it becomes fresh in a way that no other exercise can do. Um, I remember, this is, this, this, this is a digression, but I remember <clears throat> my, uh, my youth pastor when I was in Canada coming to me one day and telling me about, um, uh, about he was reading through the Old Testament stories with the, the kids from the neighborhood, most of whom had never been inside a church. And um, he was reading the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, right? And um, and so he just he just planned to just kind of you know, you know talk briefly about Ishmael and then move on. But the kids were really really wanted to know what happened to Ishmael. They realized that the story of Ishmael is a story of a child whose mother is sent away from their father and grows up without a father. And almost every child in that group had no father living at home. The vast majority of households were single-parent families led by, by the, led by the mother. He said he'd never seen that in the Scripture before, how important that was to those people. So reading the Scripture with people who have never read it before can open up things you've never seen there before. Anyway, back to the text. Uh, Jesus says, forgive. And forgiving people who are trying to kill you is not normal or easy. When Jesus was teaching, um, Jesus he had said in Luke 6, 27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, praise for the, pray for those who mistreat you. That's relatively easy to say. I just said it just now. It's a lot harder to do. But this is where Jesus walks his talk. It's not easy to love and forgive our enemies. It might be comparatively easy to forgive your friends in an argument or forgive your parents for acting so ridiculously or forgive your children for doing such stupid things. That kind of Forgiveness is relatively easy, right? But it isn't easy to forgive your enemies. Never mind the people who are trying to kill you. And let's not pretend it was easy for Jesus either. either. Because just the night before, he had been afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and asked if there was any way to avoid this, he'd rather avoid it. Right? And here on the cross, he's in great pain. Pain inflicted by the people at the foot of the cross, right? But he forgives them. Jesus loved those who were hurting and killing him. That's amazing. To love your enemies is a miracle. It's a miracle from God. And that has been lived out in the lives of countless Christian martyrs over the last 2,000 years as they followed their Lord's example and died forgiving their persecutors. There's a lovely portrayal of this kind of attitude in one of my favorite movies. Some of you know I'm, I, I'm a movie buff. I like movies. Um, you probably haven't heard of this one. It's called... Par Anybody heard of the movie Paradise Road? One or two people. People I actually know and probably have recommended it to. <laughs> anyway, um, it's the true story of, uh, of a group of women who are interned on the island of Sumatra during the Second World War by the Japanese. It's one of these, these movies with a strong female ensemble cast. It's got Glenn Close, Frances McDormand, Pauline Collins... Kate Blanchett in her first major role, okay? One of the, one of the lead characters is a missionary, Mar Margaret Dryborough, actually, in the, in the true story. She's, she's a Geordie from the, she was a Geordie from the northeast of England. And at one of the points in the story, one of the other women says to her about her Japanese captors who just treated them appallingly. She says to them, looking at her like just really quizzically going, you don't hate them, do you? And her response is wonderful. It's, no, I've tried, but I just can't. <laughs> the worse they behave, the more sorry I feel for them. Those are the words of someone who knows what it is to be forgiven. See, because... One way of translating the word to forgive is to let go. But it's really hard to just let go. I don't know if you've heard the story about how to trap a monkey. I don't know if it's actually true or if it's a fable. <laughs> but this is what they say. The way to trap a monkey is you find a jar with a neck that's just wide enough for the monkey to get its hand inside, inside right? Then you put some kind of goodies inside the jar. And then you lie. Then you tie the jar to a tree. Along comes a monkey. And in order to get the goodies inside the jar, it squeezes its hand in through the, you know, the neck of the jar. And it grabs whatever's inside. But now, of course, it can't get its hand out of the jar. Right? So he sits there trying to get his hand with all the goodies out of the jar not a hope. The only way the, the monkey can actually get free is if he lets go of what's in his hand. He just lets it go, then he pulls his hand back out again. As long as he holds on to that thing inside the jar, he's stuck there. The only way we ever become free in life is if we let go. If we just let go. Let go of the way our parents hurt us in childhood. Let go 
of the pain of our past relationships. Let go of all the mistakes we've made. The only way to freedom is to let go of all the hatred and anger we have inside about past wrongs. Because the only other option we have is to live in unforgiveness. Carrying around all the anger and hatred against someone else for what they've done to you. The thing is, 99% of the time, they have no idea that you're mad at them. They have no idea that you're mad at them. Your unforgiveness doesn't affect them. It only affects you. Someone once said, living in unforgiveness is like taking poison and waiting for the other guy to drop dead. And from the cross, God lets go of our sins. His first word from the cross, Jesus looks up to God and asks them to forgive these people, to let go of their sins. If he can do that from the cross, then surely through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive those who've hurt us. Father, forgive whom? Them. Father, forgive them. Them. Such a dividing word, isn't it? Divides the world, the whole world into two categories. Them and us. Actually, sometimes just them and me. You know? We're not the same as them. We're nice and kind and gracious and good. Not evil and nasty and bad like them. And over the last few decades, all over the world, we've seen a growing polarization in all kinds of countries. This dividing of humanity into us and them. And politics and politicians both drive it and then use it to get themselves elected. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, he looks out at them and he asks his father to forgive them. Who are they? Who is this them? Well, them are all the soldiers who have whipped and nailed him, right? Even as they ignore him and gamble for his clothing, Jesus asks his father to forgive them. Them are all the religious leaders who have brought him to this place. They've paid a friend to betray him, falsely accused him, dragged him before the Roman governor on trumped-up charges. They're the real villains in this story. And Jesus prays for forgiveness for them. Them are all the onlookers in the crowd who are just watching. They don't really care who's up on the cross. It just made for a good spectacle. Same way that people gather around a car accident or a crime scene. Jesus prays for forgiveness for them. Them are all the disciples who've run away. All his friends who said, I'll stay with you to the end. The man that shared his life for the last three years. People he'd poured his life into. Jesus prays for forgiveness for them. And them is us. You and me. Like the song says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. 
Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Because it's not just the thems in our lives that need forgiveness. It's the us's and the me's too. That's why we pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because the them actually includes us. For we do not know what we are doing. Soldiers around the cross didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't really know that they were crucifying the Son of God. The religious leaders didn't really that they were plotting against the very presence of God in their midst. The onlookers didn't realize that the person they were watching die was the most loving human being of all time. They just didn't get it. But that didn't stop Jesus from praying and asking his Father to forgive them. Sin is foolishness. When we sin against God or against other people, we're being stupid. Often, like smokers, we know, like smokers who know that they're at the risk of getting cancer, but keep on smoking, we're fully aware that what we're doing is stupid, but we go ahead and do it anyway. A friend of mine who worked with drug addicts once said that we're all addicts. Our drug of choice is selfishness. We're addicted to selfishness. And like an addict, we, know, we may know in our heads that doing that thing or saying those words or avoiding that responsibility is wrong. That the consequences are hurtful to others and to ourselves. But we still go ahead and make those sinful choices because it seems easier or more pleasant in the short term. And so we cry out, Father, please forgive us, for we too don't really know what we're doing. That day on the cross, even though the crowds below him didn't confess or repent or even admit to any guilt, Jesus calls out to God, Father, forgive them. And Jesus' love and forgiveness from the cross is pure grace, freely given as a gift to people who did not deserve it. And it's the same with us. God's forgiveness is a gift of grace to a bunch of people who do not deserve it. Jesus' first word from the cross is pure grace for you and for me and for the world. Father, forgive us, for we do not know what we do. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer this morning.
Forgive us. Forgive us for the things that we've done, for the things that we've not done, the things that we know we should have done. As we read in James last on Wednesday night, he who knows what he should do and does not do it, that is sin. So, Lord, each one of us has done something like that this week. And we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because, like the crowds around you at the base of the cross, Lord Jesus, we need it. And the only place we can find forgiveness is in you. So, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we ask for the grace to forgive those around us. Help us, Lord, to experience your forgiveness and turn around and extend forgiveness to others. Whether or not they recognize their, their faults, Lord, is not the issue. We want to be free. We want to be free to follow you. In order to do that, Lord, we need to forgive those around us. I'm going to give you a moment or two to just, in silence, ask the Lord who it is that you need to forgive. Who do you need to forgive this morning? Who are you carrying a burden of resentment against or anger or bitterness? Who do you need to forgive? Recognizing that it's not a one-and-done deal, that this, this is a process. But commit yourself today to forgive that person and to continue to forgive them as you remember what happened, what they did. Continue to remember to forgive them because it's the only way you'll get free. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness for us that enables us to forgive others. And in your name we pray. Amen.